Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, our text this morning begins at verse 12 and extends to the end of the chapter. As you know, we began working our way through this book last week. Uh, as we do so, we're going to see over and again how God is pursuing his mission to his world. Uh, he's going to use us to accomplish that uh, as we witness and pray and indeed even as we suffer. It's part of what God uses to carry out his mission. Last time we saw how Jesus prepares his disciples for this mission, promising the outpouring of the Spirit. We'll see how that happens next week when we look at the first verses of chapter 2 in Pentecost. Uh, but this morning, it's kind of another preparation passage as God's people are being asked a particular question, not just in, in the first century, but today, you and me. God's asking whether we'll be his witness, whether, whether we will carry the witness of, of Scripture and of the apostles themselves into the, the various places where God calls us. But in order to hear that question and answer it by the power of the Spirit, we need his help. So let's ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do need the help of the Spirit. Father, we pray through Jesus you would pour out your Spirit upon us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and you would open our eyes of faith, that you would do your work as you use your God-breathed Word to challenge us and to convict us, but above all, to point us to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, grant us this, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of, his, of Jerusalem, that, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And... Let another take his, play, his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, 
You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I think I mentioned before, but I first started preaching when I was 16 years old in an old school fundamentalist Baptist context. My my pastor was the Dr. B.W. Sanders of the Bethlehem Baptist Church, and he was a classmate of Jerry Falwell. Uh, Dr. Sanders ruled a a certain stream of fundamentalist Baptists in Virginia in the mid-1980s. And and one of the things he did was he would take us preacher boys and he would send us out into the countryside to fill pulpits. And so I'll never forget my first sermon. It was at a little stone church uh, in the middle of nowhere uh, about an hour or so from where we lived in, in Virginia. Um, I, I preached on Ephesians 4. Uh, I know that it was not a very good sermon, but, but it was striking how the people responded. Um, though these were Baptist folks and, and though these, those were, these were white folks, they, they enjoyed call and response with their preacher. Uh, and as they figured out that I was new at this uh, and struggling a bit, they started yelling out, go on, boy! Go on, keep on going. That's right, that's right. You're doing good. It was incredibly startling for a 16-year-old. I couldn't keep my train of thought, but, but, but now, 40 years later, having preached lots in that kind of context, I know exactly what I should have said. I should have said, can I get a witness? Now, I I know better than to do that here, because if I asked for a witness and nobody called out, it would be kind of embarrassing to to this Presbyterian preacher, right? But when when I call out, or when when other preachers call out, can I get a witness, there's the expectation of a response, isn't there? It's that question, can I get a witness? That, that, That was the question that was going through my mind as I studied and meditate on, on this passage this past week, because uh, having heard the resurrected and ascended Christ predict that these uh, followers of his, these apostles, would become his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, they, they return back to Jerusalem. Uh, they go back to the room in which they were staying. It's called the upper room. It could have been the same room in which they had observed uh, Passover with Jesus. It could have been a different room. But they go back to this upper room, and then Luke names uh, the 11 remaining apostles. It's actually kind of striking that for most of these people, this is the first and the last time that they will be mentioned in the book called The Acts of the Apostles. But others join them in prayer. Others join with the 11 the women, likely female uh, patrons of Jesus, these wealthy ladies who had followed Jesus uh, throughout his ministry and were, were witnesses of the crucifixion. Mary, the mother of Jesus, along with his brothers, most notably James, who's going to play a, a hugely important role in Acts as well as in the New Testament. We have a letter from James in our New Testament. 
and they are gathered together in prayer. And one of the things we'll see throughout Acts is that God's mission will turn on these places where God's people engage in prayer, and this is one of them. Because here, as they pray, these believers with the apostles, it becomes clear that God directs them to fill the gap left by Judas's betrayal, left by Judas's death. And as they pray, it's as though God, through Jesus, by the Spirit, is asking them the question, can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? But it's a question not just for these first century followers of Jesus. That's, that's the question for us this morning, that God, through Jesus, by the Spirit, is asking us, can I get a witness? Will you bear witness to me, give testimony for me? Of course, as these followers of Jesus are wrestling with all of this, they're wrestling, first of all, with the witness of Scripture itself. I mean, this, this scene that begins in verse 15 happens at some point in this 10-day period between Jesus' ascension and enthronement at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and Pentecost, when the Spirit would be poured out by the Father through the Son. And so somewhere in this 10-day period, this scene plays out. Peter stands up. Already he's, he's remarkably different. After all, Peter was the one who couldn't even answer the questions of the servant girl, which would have required him to bear witness or to give testimony concerning Jesus. Surely you're one of his followers, and he brought curses down upon himself, remember? Now, Peter is taking the lead and helping this group wrestle with the witness of Scripture. And especially as they, as they wrestle with the witness of Scripture, they, they, they try to ask the question, what does the Bible say and what does it mean for us in regards to Judas's apostasy? Did you see that? Verse 16, Peter says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Did you see what Peter said? The scripture had to be fulfilled. It had to be fulfilled. Why? Why did scripture have to be fulfilled? Well, because scripture ultimately bears witness to God's sovereign purpose and plan. And, and Peter describes Holy Scripture as that which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. God the Holy Spirit spoke. He, he spoke out the words of Scripture. He, he breathed out the words of Scripture, but he used David. David in all of his particularity. David in, in his biographical background, and David in his stylistic interests, in the word choices that he makes. God the Holy Spirit breathed out his word through David. And yet every single word that David wrote is exactly what God the Holy Spirit desired to be said. We call this understanding the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture verbal dealing with words plenary every word inspiration breathed out so 
So God the Holy Spirit breathed out every word of Scripture through human authors. That's exactly what Peter's saying here. Here's a, here's a witness or a testimony concerning the very nature of Holy Scripture, that it is in fact breathed out as the very word of God. And, and that, has, that has to do ultimately, Holy Scripture does, with God's sovereign purpose and plan as it relates to the Messiah, Jesus. Everything about the Bible is ultimately going to make its way to him. Jesus himself said that as part of his, his confrontations with the Pharisees, remember? Search the scriptures. In them you think you have life, but it, these are they that testify of me. And so the, the scriptures testify concerning Jesus and every part of what he, he came to, to do on behalf of his people, including his betrayal. Sitting behind these passages that Peter quotes, he's going to quote from Psalm 69, Psalm 109, more on that in a minute, but sitting behind those passages is another that, to which he alludes. It's actually Psalm 41, verse 9. There David had written, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. My close friend, who ate my bread, the bread at Passover, the bread of the first Lord's Supper, he has lifted up his heel against me. He's turned on me. He's betrayed me. And of course, that's exactly what Judas did. And the one who's lifted up his heel against Jesus now has received the judgment of God. That's, that's part of the import of Psalm 69, verse 25, which, which Peter quotes here in verse 20. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. If you actually look at Psalm 69 and verse 25 and, and then read the context around it, it makes clear that the psalm speaks directly to the judgment that comes to the one who persecutes one who is struck down. Um, presumably David the king in Psalm 69, but looking forward to Jesus. What, what kind of judgment comes to the one who persecutes Jesus? Well, not only does his camp become desolate, Psalm 69 verse 29 says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Of course, that's exactly what happens to Judas. He's blotted out of the book of the living. He's not enrolled among the righteous. In fact, you have this, this grisly account in verses 18 and 19 of, of what happens to Judas after uh, the, his recognition that he's betrayed Jesus, what happens to his blood money. It all demonstrates God's judgment against him and God's judgment against what he's done. All this, Peter says, had to be fulfilled. All this was part of God's sovereign purpose and plan. And all of this created an opportunity that was now before the people of God. You see, the opportunity is in verse 17. Peter, Peter told those gathered that Judas was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. He was one of the twelve. He was one of those who would participate in the reconstituted people of God. Just, just, just as Israel was made up of 12 patriarchs representing the 12 tribes, and, and the 12 were counted as the foundation of the people of God, Israel, so now Jesus was, was forming a new people, a new Israel, 
And instead of 12 patriarchs, he had 12 apostles, except, except Judas had betrayed him. And now the fellowship was broken. And the witness of Scripture once again had to be fulfilled. And so Peter quotes a portion of Psalm 109, verse 8 in verse 20. Let another take his office. Again, if this afternoon you were to read Psalm 109, what you would discover is the psalm speaks of an enemy who deserved God's judgment. God's judgment is poured out upon him. Let another take his office. And so Peter and the others are, are wrestling with these scriptures, with their witness, trying to determine what to do. But, but don't miss it. This isn't just what what should happen in the first century among these apostles, the women, uh, Mary, the brothers of Jesus, others who follow. It's not just what happens in the first century. This is what should happen for us today. How, I, how do we go about making our decisions in our lives? Do we, do we talk to our friends? or we consult our networks? Do we perhaps um, get on YouTube and try to figure it out? Or Google, what should I do with my life today? Google, right? Try to find the answer. Uh, it's remarkable, actually, what comes up when you ask Google. Uh, I, I know that. A friend's told me that. But is that how we try to determine what God's calling us to be and do in the world? What, what should we be wrestling with? Shouldn't we be wrestling with what Holy Scripture says to us? What the Holy Spirit has said in his word? Why would we do that? Well, it's because here is the sovereign purpose and plan of God. Here's the very will of God and scripturated for us, breathed out by 40 different authors in 66 books over 1,500 years, and yet every word inspired and infallible and inerrant. Why wouldn't we want to wrestle with the witness of scripture, what it's calling us to be and do in this world, or in any given situation? What is it that the Proverbs say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. How do we acknowledge him? How do we trust in him? By coming to his word and wrestling with the witness of Holy Scripture so that what we do and, and what we're obeying is not our own whims or the predilections of our, of our networks, but what God wants us to do by coming to this book. That, that's, that's the example we have here of what the apostles being led by Peter are doing as they wrestle with the witness of Scripture. And obedience to the witness of Scripture then leads to an expansion of the witness of the apostles. I mean, Look at what Peter says. Verse 21, he says this. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. What you have here in short compass is, is the standard for what an apostle was. An apostle was someone who was a particular kind of witness. He's someone who, who had accompanied Jesus throughout his ministry. And so he could verify that Jesus was a real person, a real man, in a real body. He, he wasn't a ghost. He wasn't some kind of, of ethereal spirit. He wasn't some kind of forced pushed body like Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi where Luke forces his, his spirit body out to do battle. No, he's none of these things. No, Jesus is a real man in a real body, real flesh and bones who really ate and really slept and really wept and really laughed. And so part of being a witness 
that the, the role the apostles had was to witness concerning Jesus' life, but also his teaching. They could witness to what Jesus said, so that if someone said, well, I heard Jesus said this, they could say, no, I was there, I heard him, this is what he said, you're wrong. This is the way he interpreted scripture. This is how we are to follow him. And so they were witnesses of his life and his teaching, but also his death. These apostles were to, to witness to Jesus' death that a real man with a real body died a real death on a real cross. It wasn't, it wasn't simply some kind of uh, fainting spell so that he was revived in the cool of the tomb like some liberal scholars suggested in the last century. No, no, he's a real man who really died for the sins of the world. But above all, Peter says, an apostle is a, a witness of the resurrection so that they could testify that, that they've seen the, this Jesus, that which our eyes have seen, that which our eyes have handled, our hands have handled, John says in 1 John 1. That's what apostles were doing. They, they could testify that Jesus' real body came out of a real grave and he was really alive. Bodily, actually, really alive. That's the standard for an apostle. That they, that they could witness all of that. They could bear testimony to all of that. The life, the teaching, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And while it appears that an, an exception was made for the Apostle Paul, even he recognizes in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was one as one untimely born, he said. And so the least among the apostles. But of course, this means that the, that the office of the apostle passed away with the first generation. It was an extraordinary office for an extraordinary purpose. And that purpose was to witness to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But the apostolic witness continues. Right? You know that. Where do you look for it? Where do you look for the continuation of the, of the apostolic witness? Well, you don't look for it in a, in a line of pastors and bishops that, that are passed on by way of ordination from Peter to the next bishop to the next bishop to the next and all those who have been ordained by them. Right? The, the apostolic succession is not an apostolic succession of ordination. No, that the, the apostolic succession is one of, of testimony. And where do you find that witness? Where do you find that testimony that continues to bear witness today? You, again, you find it here. You find it in this book. Here in, in the Holy Scriptures, we have that which they received, they delivered to us. Paul says that repeatedly. That which I received, I've also delivered to you. Over and again, he says that. And then in, in Timothy, he tells the, his young pastor, that which you've heard from me, teach also to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so where do you find this teaching that the apostles received from Jesus and passed on to us? You find it in Holy Scripture. And so this apostolic succession of gospel truth, there we find this ongoing witness of the apostles as they continue to tell us about Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection and what it means for us. And we, we then evaluate, is their witness trustworthy? Yes, it is. How do we know? Because it's spirit-breathed. God and the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul and spoke through James and spoke through John and others. And we trust that their testimony is true. And so with this standard set forward, there's a selection process that unfolds some of which looks familiar to us and other parts of it look strange. Look at verse 24. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, 
who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. As I say here, there's some stuff that looks familiar and other things that look strange. The familiar things are, first of all, in the selection of an apostle, and it should be for us today in the selection of elders and deacons, what do they do? Well, they prayed. They prayed. And that's what, that's what we should do. We shouldn't, you know, evaluate based on, well, I know his mother and father, or, well, he's a good guy, or I was in the same fraternity with him, or, or, or a range of other evaluative things. No, what do we do? We pray. And we, and we go to the sovereign Lord. That's who they pray to. Who's this Lord? What's well, Jesus? Jesus, who's ascended to the right hand of the Father, who's received gifts to give to his people. What are those gifts? Well, Ephesians 4 tells us. Ephesians 4 tells us that the ascended Lord has received gifts. And what are those gifts? He gave to the church apostles and prophets, these extraordinary offices for extraordinary purposes, but also ordinary ones, pastors and teachers, later and elsewhere, elders and deacons. And so we pray to the sovereign king, the one who's lord over his church, to give gifts to his people. And this, this giving of these gifts means that these here in the first century, these apostles, but today these elders and deacons participate in a shared ministry. We, we share this ministry. This is a shared office. It's not, it's not my ministry that gets shared, or it's not one particular elder's ministry that gets shared. No, it's, it's our ministry that gets shared together. This ministry that Christ, the, the, the ascended Christ, is given. That's what's shared. That's, that's what Peter says. Tell us whom you've chosen to take the place in this ministry. Who's, who's going to share in this ministry? That's what we're asking the, the ascended king to give, someone to share in it. In fact, one of the things that our Book of Church Order prescribes is after the prayer of ordination and installation is prayed and the men have their hands on these uh, ordinands uh, to office, we then pick them up and I, as the, usually I'm the one who's presiding, I'll say... We welcome you to participate in this ministry with us. We shake their hands. That in shaking their hands and saying that, we're saying exactly what Peter's saying. This is a shared ministry in a shared office. And so all of this looks familiar. But, but there's one strange thing. It's this casting of the lot to decide between Justice and Matthias. I mean, obviously, this is not a democratic election where the ballots are passed and private ballot and you pass them in or you put them somewhere. That, that's not what's going on. So, so what's this about? Well, the, the casting of lots was the traditional way within Judaism to make decisions. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, the lot, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so is that how we should choose our officers today? We have two or three, and we shoot dice, and we try to figure it out. Is, is that what we should do? Well, it, it's important to recognize that there are no further examples in the New Testament of casting lots as the way of making decisions, and that's because of what is going to happen, what we're going to look at next week. It's because of Pentecost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the, in the lives of God's people, into the life of the church, 
means that the Spirit is the one who guides and directs, especially as, as men and women study Holy Scripture and especially as they pray. The Spirit is the one who directs God's people in accordance with his word. But, but the addition of Matthias to the twelve returns the fellowship to its full number. Just as with twelve patriarchs, so now with twelve apostles, there's a new Israel that's being formed, a new people of God, and the Spirit will be poured out upon them in just a few days. But, but before we leave this scene, in which we've seen the witness of Scripture and the witness of the apostles, we have to stop and ask about our own witness today. Because, of course, we have the Holy Scriptures. We have in these Scriptures the apostolic witness. And we've come to know Jesus as the resurrected King. We've known His grace, and it's transformed our characters, changed us from the inside out. It's transformed our callings, so that everyone that we come across is, is someone to love and to care for, and ultimately to point to Jesus. So, so what does this have to do with our witness today? Well, it's, it's kind of striking how God works. I didn't plan it this way, but our, as you know, our statement of faith this morning were the catechism questions on the decrees of God. And the decrees of God are, are typically that place where we would talk about election, the doctrine of election. And Presbyterians are known for believing that, that God has, has chosen us and chosen to save us. And we believe that, that God chooses us not because we're so great, or that because he looked down the corridor of time and he saw that we believe. But, but no, he, he chose us because he chose us. Not because we're great, but because he's gracious and because of his great love. And so to, to know this grace is to know that, that God chose us at the beginning and that God will persevere us or, or preserve us and, and cause us to persevere all the way to the end. And that doctrine is a huge comfort to us. Why wouldn't we want to believe it and teach it as scripture does? But you know, that's not all there is to that doctrine. I mean, we believe that God chose to save us, yes, but he chose to save us for a purpose. Just as he chose uh, Matthias in the, in the casting of lots to participate in this ministry. Just as in the Old Testament, Israel is chosen, not just so that they could be rescued, but also so that they might be a witness to the nations, a light to the nations, so God's chosen us for the same purpose, that we might represent him. In other words, God chooses us and calls us as the way of answering the question, can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Yes, God says, I've, I've, chose this and I've chosen this one, I've chosen that one to be my witness. He's chosen you, he's chosen me. And the real question is, is, is when we come to those kind of crossroads moments about whether we're going to open our mouths or not, will we do it? Will we respond to the call? I'll never forget it. It's emblazoned on my mind. It's been about 15 years ago, but I had the opportunity when I worked at Covenant Seminary to take a, an executive education class at, at Harvard. Uh, it was an eight-day class, and it kicked off the first night with this dinner, and we were on top of one of the buildings at Harvard, and we were overlooking the Charles River, and it was, it was remarkable and amazing. I, I was talking to the person on my left, uh, and because I was at Harvard, I had my, what my mom called my Sunday manners. So I started to turn to the person on my right to try to make conversation. I finally got her eye, and we started making conversation, and she told me all about herself. 
that she was a, an educational trainer at a city college or community college in San Francisco. Um, she was very aggressive in all her views. She let me know that she was a lesbian and she was very aggressive in promoting that lifestyle and on and on she went. And then finally, the question that sometimes I dread that finally was uttered, so what do you do? And there I was at the crossroads moment. You know, I could have easily bypassed and said, well, I'm an educator, or I'm in religious studies, or something like that. But in that moment, I heard the voice, can I get a witness? And I said, well, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. It was like I spilled soup all over her. Um, and she said, well, I, I'm not very religious, but I'm quite spiritual. And to which I said, well, that's great, because Jesus himself said that he came to seeking for people who are spiritual so that he might rescue them from their sins. Boom. She turned her back to me and I saw her back the rest of that evening. Uh, didn't get a chance to speak to her. So I was thankful that I was sitting next to someone on my left and we had a pleasant evening together. Why do I tell you that story? For this reason, we're not responsible for the results of our witness. We're not. It very well may be that we're in an awkward social situation just like that. But what we are responsible for is the response to the call in those crossroads moments where we, we begin to think, I could work my way out of this by not really talking about Jesus. Will we respond? Because in those moments, friends, God is calling you. Jesus is calling you by his spirit. And he's saying, can I get a witness? How will you respond? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we bless you that we're not responsible for the results. Uh, we're only responsible for the witness. Lord, grant us grace. Uh, and grant us the empowerment of your spirit, as we'll see next time, so that we will be witnesses. Lord, grant us grace in the various places you put us as you scatter us across this city. And in those crossroads moments that you bring us to, may we hear your voice and may we respond by bearing testimony to the great King and Savior. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our